Welcome to the Humanise the Numbers podcast series. Leaders, managers and owners of ambitious accounting firms sharing insights, successes and issues that will challenge you and connect you and your firm to the ways and means of transforming your firm's results. And I hate the word client and I, I, I just don't like it because it indicates a hierarchical relationship and... Yeah, you know, you're you're beneath me, and you're you know you're you're the client, and I'm the professional, and you must you must be spoon fed by me. When it transforms to my business partner that I'm speaking to, and by the way, I you know I I know my business partner's husband as well, and I know that John is really hoping to take the business partner away on holiday, and I know that their kids are desperate to go to Disney, and, and all all of this stuff that goes around it. It then it's really hard not to be empathetic, but ultimately the main intention of these calls is just for our partners to know that we're there for them. We we know them, we like them, we're we're on the same level as them as humans. How do you rapidly grow an accountancy firm to a place with two thousand six hundred plus clients from the northern reaches of Scotland to the southern reaches of Wales and England? whilst retaining a real deep human touch, human focus. Well, on this podcast, which is podcast one of two with Carl Reader of DNT, you will hear Carl share some deep insights into how he and his team take humanizing the numbers deadly seriously, which has contributed significantly to the growth and the success of DNT. Let's go to that podcast now. So, Paul, I'm Carl Reader. I'm Joint Chairman of DNT. DNT is a multi-million turnover, multi-award winning firm, and primarily we specialise in serving niche industries. Um, our biggest industry that we serve is the franchising industry. But yep. we um, we learned about the concept of niching, funnily enough, through the martial arts. So we've had experiences with a couple of niches. Through martial arts, okay, we might have to dive into that one in a minute. But before we um, uh, before we get into the nitty gritty, can you just give us a, a, a guide to the you know the scale of the firm, the number of team members you've got, number of offices, the number of customers you work with, just so that people listening into this can get a real sense as to uh, the scale of your operation, please. Yeah, of course. So in terms of team numbers, I'm going to be very honest and vulnerable and say I don't know. Um, the truth of the matter is, Paul, we've gone through quite a few changes and reorganizations internally. So um, not just reorganization in terms of um, changing the, the structure in the UK, um, but also through embracing offshoring a whole lot more than we have done before. So the reality on team numbers, I don't know. Um, at our peak, we were about 60 to 65 team members, um, okay. plus our financial planning arm, um, plus a few others. Where right. we are today, it's less than that, but I don't know the numbers um, in the UK as it stands. Cool. Um, in terms of client numbers, I can be a little bit more accurate with that. We've got 2,653. Um, so they are clients all over the UK. Uh, we're in all four corners. Yeah, we go up as far as Inverness and Elgin, down to Cornwall, over to Belfast and so on. So we've got quite a wide um, geographical spread. 
Yeah. And then in terms of offices, we are actually based in a single location. Um, although we've pretty much taken over that industrial park. We're in a lovely rural industrial park just off of Junction 15 of the M4. Um, right. Thankfully, the other side of the M4 to Swindon, but we're, we're a couple of minutes <laughs> away. And it's a, um, it's a range of converted barns there. We've, um, we've taken a few of those. Brilliant. But we've very deliberately decided to stay in one location at the moment rather than um, spreading geographically. Okay, so we've got customers all over the UK. We're in one location, which means that you've mastered the art of digitally working you know, from a distance with all of your clients. So we'll get into that in a, in a few moments. Uh, but my starting question is, you know, this podcast is label is humanize the numbers. What does that phrase humanize the numbers actually mean to you and your firm? How do, how do you interpret that phrase? Yeah, sure. So it's a phrase that can be interpreted in a number of ways. But for me, one of the challenges that I see in the profession as a whole and often where we as accountants let down our clients, let, let's be honest, is but we we fail to realize that there are humans behind the numbers mm. uh, what what do i mean by that so it, it can be very simple when you're working on a yeah if we go down to nuts and bolts on this if you're working mm. on a set of accounts or a tax return and you see a number on the screen mm. as an individual who's working on a task focus rather than a people focus mm. it can become very easy to forget the fact that an extra zero on that number has a very real impact on the person that you're dealing with, whether positively or negatively. So mm. if it's a tax bill, an extra zero is pretty scary. And mm. if, you, if you get it wrong or you don't actively try and help them to reduce it, you're mm. not doing your job properly. Um, likewise, when it comes to um, profitability, if you're trying to help the business, if you if you don't have that obsessive focus over every 500 quid for that client being as valuable as you treat 500 pounds yourself in your own life. If, mm. you, if you don't make that connection, but there's a real person behind it, there's a real family whose family holiday depends on the numbers that you come out with. Mm. Um, if you don't understand that there is that reality, that humanity behind it, yeah. then you can never be an effective advisor. So for mm. me, that's the essence of humanizing the numbers. numbers. So it's it's even the small numbers within any whether it's P and L balance sheet, cash flow, payroll, whatever it is. There's a uh, there's a set of humans behind that. Obviously, it's it's more obvious, isn't it, with payroll? But let's just take that out of the scenario for a minute. Um, so it's treat those numbers as if they were your own, because mm. the impact on that person, that client, is as big on them as it would be, if not more so, on you. Is, hey, this this is right? it. Look, yeah. I, let, let me relate a personal example. You know, I, I do okay for myself, Paul. I, you know, I'm not I'm not scraping by every month. It's not beans on toast every evening. Uh, Nothing wrong with beans morning. on toast, Carl. <laughs> <laughs> but, but this, this morning, I um, I had a trip into Reading. And I decided to go on the train. I decided as my youngest, uh, my youngest son, Junior, was off of school. So he started his half term a day early. I thought, you know what? We're going to jump on the train. We're in a new area. We're going to jump on the train. We're going to go two stops down. He gets a little train ride. I can go out and have my coffee for breakfast. Mm. And then we can come back and it, it fills the day up a little bit. So mm. we did that. And I lost my train ticket. Now, Paul, that's not unusual. <laughs> because I am one of the very rare breeds of accountants that is also adult ADHD, which is really challenging in my personal life, in my business life and so on. But I lost my train ticket and it was six quid. 
six quid is irrelevant in the grand scheme of things. Sure. But the pain that that calls me, where's my ticket? I've got to go to the ticket machine and buy another poxy ticket for six quid. Yeah, Six yeah, quid yeah. is six quid. And I grew up knowing the value of a pound. Mm. The challenge often that we have as accountants is when their number's on the screen, six quid could be 60 quid. It could be 600 quid. It could be 6,000 pounds. But because we're taught about the concepts of materiality and focusing on what is apparently important, mm. six quid is just six pounds. It's a number on the screen. Mm. And we, we do lose that connection. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's interesting. I, I've been with two firms the last couple of days uh, in a, a team setting um, with, with their sets of managers. So it was one group of uh, eight managers in one and a group of 12 managers with the other. And um, we were talking about the emotional impact of the work that you do, which I think is what you're talking about. This might be six quid ticket, but the emotional impact on you in terms of the uncertainty, the discombobulation, the stress that that brings. Yeah. And if that, if as a firm, you and your team help clients either prevent or overcome that, it's the emotional impact that has the bigger result, don't you think, in terms of the relationship than actually the number themselves? Or do you think I'm off kilter there? No, no, I think, I think you're absolutely right. You see, the problem is logically, we all know that six pounds wasn't worth me worrying about in the mm. nicest possible way. Sure. I, shouldn't, I shouldn't have wasted 15 minutes of my morning worrying about six pounds. Mm. You know, I pay, um, I pay far more than the equivalent of six pound per 15 minutes for services around the house yeah. to save me that time to buy family time. Yeah. But in that moment, in that heat of the instance, the emotions took over and they overtook the logical side. Mm. And the challenge that I see a lot of business owners have, and apologies, Paul, if we're going off on a different tangent here. No, we're not going. We're on there exactly the right tangent. Keep Fantastic. Going. But <laughs> the challenges that a lot of business owners have is that the unknown tends to cause them far, uh, far dis a disproportionate worry compared to what should reasonably be expected from a logical mindset. Now, yeah. for us as accountants, we know tax, we know accounts, we understand the legislation. So when stuff happens, we know, yeah, we've got that sixth sense of what we can trust and rely on and what we can't. You know, I'm thinking about a business owner that I've known for about 20 years. Um, he's become a good friend of mine over the years. And he was having an issue with his bank where there was an issue with the bank and the bank manager said, look, it's fine. This is fairly routine. This is what's happened. I'm going to sort it. Mm. Now, I, I was able to gauge pretty quickly that the bank manager was being honest. Um, they had appraised the situation quite well and to put my trust in that bank manager. Uh, it just felt right to me. But to him, this was new to him. This was the first time he'd experienced any challenges with a bank. Mm. So he was having sleepless nights. He was having difficulty breathing and so on. And that difference where we, we as, um, as trained accountants who are highly qualified and have seen it over and over again, sometimes we can lose that empathy and that understanding of the pain and the fear and the uncertainty that business owners go through when it comes to things like the tax bill that's around the corner that they don't know about or the changes that the government is telling them they have to make. Mm. This stuff can be really quite terrifying for a business owner who just mm. wants to get on with doing the job that they do, serving their customers, making some money and enjoying their time with their family. Yeah, brilliant, brilliant. So you've clearly got a crystal clear appreciation 
you call empathy of what's going on in the business owner's mind and heart in and around the stresses and strains of yes running the business but of the unknown and also of the numbers because they're not the expert of the numbers the accountants are we all you know that, that that's stating the blatantly obvious so how do you and your team overcome this numbers obsession that accountants have but don't have the empathy or emotional obsession in terms of the impact of those numbers whether they're on screen or not with your customers what's going on in your firm that actually what are your people doing that enables those conversations those interactions to reassure and and build certainty in the heart and minds of your customers what's going on really good question so uh, in our firm we've got a few layers and i believe and i'm not trying to blow my own trumpet here but i believe that this um feeling comes strongest from me and at the top um it's been reinforced our md dave is a non-accountant so he was a former operations director at papa john's pizza um our commercial director phil you know again he's a non-accountant he's come from a commercial background um so we don't have accountants at the top end so to speak mm -hmm. um where it comes from from me, I think very honestly, Paul, I, I mentioned earlier that my upbringing kind of taught me the value of a quid. I mm. had what I call a normal upbringing. I've realized mm. that it's not a normal upbringing. Mm. Um, it was actually a um, quite a scrappy upbringing, you know, working class or whatever you'd want to call it. But, you know, there was um, often more month than money. Um, my dad was a locksmith. Mum was a school cleaner. So I kind of learned the hard way about the pains that um, lack of money can bring, the need to be on top of it, um, but also understanding that ability to juggle and um, understanding the, I, I guess, the pains of, you know, when I was 16 and living on my own um, in a bedsit, it was a grotty bedsit, it was the worst you could think of, but having to take my record decks and my record collection down to the local cash converters, um, being given 75 quid or whatever it was, yeah that helped to pay the rent. So I've, I've had that personal pain myself. Yes. Um, so that's where it, I guess it becomes um, passionate from me. Um, mm -hmm. the, the top end of our leadership team, a good proportion of non-accountants. So they've sat either on the business owner side or supporting business owners outside of the numbers. Um, but don't get me wrong, just because we've got this perhaps evangelical view on the fact that we need to have empathy and we need to think about our clients first I and mean, we actually we call our clients partners rather than clients Interesting. Um, because that's the way we see the relationship with them whilst we have that message internally the challenges that we have is that as we go down the organization regardless of what we do regardless of what systems we put in regardless of the training we give it still does get diluted particularly as you bring new team members in with um, trained learnings from other firms and their own way of doing things, it's a message that has to be repeated over and over and over again. Mm. Um, we've realized that as with any message you try and share in your firm, the only time that people are starting to listen to you is by the point that you're bored of saying it. Yeah, we have, we've got a saying when we work with firms about who blinks first on this stuff. Because mm. if you blink first and give up too soon, then it doesn't wash in. Yeah. Um, but if they blink first and it does wash in, then you've you, and and it's and, and, and until you're hoarse and bored and sick of it, you haven't said it enough. I think that's what you're saying. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. It's and it's crazy, isn't it? Because yeah. the, the problem is when when you believe in something so much, and this comes with anything in a firm, whether it's trying to drive change through the organisation, trying to 
um, reinforce confidence in the team members that they can build relationships, whether it's bringing in new services. By the point that you're prepared to talk to your team about it, mm. you are so convinced that it's the right way to go because you've done the due diligence yourself. You've been thinking about it in the shower and you've been chewing it over at home and all of this stuff that by the time you're telling your team, you've said it to yourself several times anyway. Mm. So you're already bored of it at the first point that you're saying it, <laughs> let alone point 10 or point 20 when it finally yeah, 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 finally yeah. dropped. Yeah, yeah. Amazing. Amazing. So you touched on uh, there the fact that you've got uh, systems and processes that reinforce um, this value of money, let's be empathetic, let's have conversations that attach something to the emotional experience of your customers. Can you run us through one or two of the those systems or processes that stand out in terms of, you know, the 2080 rule, you know, 20% of what you do delivers 80% of the result. Sure. So what, are, what, what are the one or two systems in the 20% section that deliver 80% what? of that empathetic human result that you've got in your firm? Yeah, do you know? Do you know what, Paul? I would love to say to you, I've got this magical bit of software that we use, or we've got this um, fantastic trick that we use with our clients. But it's really simple. We we proactively speak to our clients. We don't hide behind emails. We don't hide behind tax filing deadlines, or um, or perhaps the root of the more proactive accountants' upcoming deadlines rather than past deadlines. Yeah, 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 yeah. We just pick up the phone. We just pick up the blow and speak to them. Mm. And by doing that, what what I found is that when you know the names of a client rather mm. than just the company name, when you then know the husband or wife's name, when you then know the kids' names, you then know the pets' names, you then know where they're going on holiday, all of a sudden, the relationship with them transforms. Yeah. And it transforms from that of, yeah, what, what, and I hate the word client and I, I, I just don't like it because it indicates a hierarchical relationship and Brilliant. You know, you're, you're beneath me and you're, you know, you're, you're the client and I'm the professional and you must, you must be spoon fed by me. When it transforms to my business partner that I'm speaking to, and by the way, I, you know, I, I know my business partner's husband as well. And I know that John is really hoping to take the business partner away on holiday. And I know that their kids are desperate to go to Disney and, and all, all of this stuff that goes around it. Mm. It then it's really hard not to be empathetic. Mm. So I, I, would love, I would have loved to have given you a magic trick that would, mm. that people would guess, oh, I haven't thought of that. Yeah, I'm still fishing for it. I'm still, I bet you've got one. I bet you, I'm, I'm still hunting, Carl. I'm still hunting. <laughs> I'm still hunting. So that sounds amazing, but I can't, I mean, you know, I've, I've worked with accountants for 20 years now. Yeah. And uh, I'm going to go, what's the best, what, what's, what's the, uh, what's a client's peak experience? And eventually we do a whole process and, re and there's a realisation and acceptance of God's blatantly obvious is the meeting, face-to-face -face meeting with the client's peak experience. And they go, right, what's the second most peak experience? Well, it's either a Zoom or a phone call interaction mm. with them. And where in the hierarchy do the emails show up? Well, they, they don't show up really. That's just, you know, it's an interference, isn't it? We're all sick of emails. Uh, and so lots of firms, Carl, say to me, yeah, but we don't use email. We pick up the phone. And then when I do some digging... Uh, actually, the reality is the leaders think that's what's going on. And one or two of the managers are saying the right things. But when I then talk to the team and they go, right, well, how do you chase a client for some books and records or some information or, you know, and uh, oh, I send them an email, an email, an email. So most firms say they 
have more calls than emails and don't. So I'm not saying you don't do that, but how do you ensure that your clients are getting more calls than they are emails so that you have really got a human service taking place between you and your specialist clients? Yeah, so this is the, um, I, I guess, the act of dilution that I mentioned earlier. So I'm not going to say that we have more calls than emails. I'm going right. to say that's that's the, the trick that delivers the empathy. Um, however, we get that dilution down the organisation. Uh, we've put in place some ways that we can help encourage calls, but we still find that there's um, there's a couple of issues. Firstly, if somebody is disengaged, we find they tend to lean towards emails rather than calls. Okay. Secondly, we find, and this might sound extremely ageist, it might sound, it might be something I'm not allowed to say, but I'm going to say it anyway, Paul. You have to be of a certain age to use the phone. Right. That just seems to be a societal issue that we're up against. Hmm. But when we, when we take on a 20-year-old, the likelihood is that, you know, if they're between, let's say, 18 to 22, the likelihood is 90% they will lean towards written communication, 10% that they'd prefer to speak on the phone. On the flip side, if we take on somebody older, mm. it's the other way around. Yeah. And that's a very broad stereotype, but it's just what we've seen. Mm. Um, so what we've done, there's a couple of measures that we put in place to try and improve it. The first one is that we use a system of OKRs, um, objectives and key results. And what an OKR is, I'm not wanting to teach anyone how to suck eggs, is rather than having the KPI, you know, KPI being the very end result, it's the actions that can be measured that move you towards your KPI. Hmm. So for example, an OKR in this, and I don't know the precise um, metrics that Dave's put in place, um, Dave being my MD, yeah. um, but the OKR might be to make six phone calls each day. Right. Um, we are, and it's, um, I, I know it's not popular management theory, but we're quite obsessive over the data behind the scenes as well. So we've got our VoIP system, we monitor how many calls are made, so on and so forth. I know that that's seen as quite old fashioned micromanagement, but hey, it's a, it's a way of just, um, just sanity checking the, mm. what people are saying they're delivering on their OKRs, mm. the reality is that they've actually made those calls. Yeah. Um, so, so we've got that, but then on the other side, we're very conscious that there's an issue, first of all, with age, but secondly, that accountants don't naturally tend towards um, wanting to have unprompted conversations. They tend to find it difficult. They, they, I, I don't know, they're worried about feeling awkward on these phone calls. They're worried about what do I talk to the client about? What if they're unhappy? Um, what if they ask me something I don't know? So we, we try to, um, first of all, give them training. We've got a business coach who um, gives them training on how to talk. We try to scatter our team with a mix of different backgrounds as well. So, for example, Laura, who's um, heading up our operations at the moment on maternity. So she's a maternity couple at the moment, but her background is call centres. So she is very comfortable to pick up the phone mm, and she's the complete knowledge that she's going to have 10 nasty phone calls because mm. she's, her experience is selling whatever she sold in the past, mm. yellow pages or whatever it is. Mm. She's used to people shouting at her. So actually the conversations she has with our partners are a whole lot better than that. Yeah, so yeah. we find that helps as well. Um, so we, we have the training, we have the mix of experience. And 
We're always looking for hooks that the team can then use for conversations as well. Mm. So, for example, we're investing in some um, AI software. And I know every software is AI now, but sure. I, I genuinely believe there is a bit of AI, um, which, which is based on predictive tax planning. So oh, right. that we can we can have a steer on clients that might have a tax opportunity in the future just to have that in the back pocket if the conversation goes flat. Hmm. But ultimately, the main intention of these calls is just for our partners to know that we're there for them. We we know them, we like them, we're, we're on the same level as them as humans. Hmm. Amazing. It's a powerful statement that is, you know, we want our business partners and I love your commitment to not clients, business partner, the language, because language patterns are key in terms of hardwiring people's views and perceptions and emotions in and around this stuff. Um, but we want our business partners to genuinely feel, I think there's your words, uh, that we are a partner, that we're there for them. I think that was your language. Um, Absolutely. And the language we use in in our firms or practices, or as I prefer, in our business, is it's amazing the impact that it has. Mm-hmm. It, it really is. Um, even when we look at job titles, when we look at all, all of these things, you know, we we look at the way that a traditional accounting practice is structured. It's very hierarchical, mm-hmm. and it's often built in a way to serve the ego of the next person up the chain. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't serve the client. Mm. When we look at how firms, you know, and then I guess this moves then into a more structural view. When we look at the way that um, accounting practices, and I, I always love using the word practice for people who are practicing at this stuff rather than doing it properly. Mm. And they have their tax team and they have their accounts team and their audit team and their corporate finance team. And it's all based around helping their factory be more efficient mm. and helping their factory members be more um, specialised in a certain area rather than thinking about the overall customer experience and what the customer, client, if you prefer, business partners, we prefer, whether they want to be dealing with 10 different people. Hmm. Hmm. It's amazing. There was a bunch of managers, uh, not yesterday, the day before, I posed the question, what do your clients really want? And all credit to them, they go, well, actually, they want one point of contact or two at most, but they want, you know, one person to deal with uh, that has uh, got a real sense of their business and also really cares. <laughs> and so all credit to them for that. Um, and yet it took us uh, an hour of discussion to get to, you know, to extract that and everything they described when I asked the question, so what do your clients really want? And they went, oh, they want stuff on time and they want this and that. And, the, and the, all, all their answers were true, but they were task-related answers. Yeah. How do we get an efficient job done was driving their perception as to what really mattered to the clients. And at some point, someone said, well, they want us to care. And at another point, said, well, they want their business to be successful but it took a long time for that to come yeah. out. And it's, so, it, wow. it, it's phenomenal wow. because if we look at how our partners are served, yeah, we work with um, mini pods. So we've tried having um, pods of five. We've, yeah, we, we've, um, we've toyed with a lot of different models. Right. And we, we have for each portfolio of partners, we have a portfolio manager and a portfolio assistant. 
So it's actually very similar to how the likes of NatWest and Barclays and so on would work with their corporate customers. Mm. You know, the moment that you're dealing with a bank and you're over a certain turnover level, you know, if you're over a couple of million turnover, typically you then get mobile phone numbers for your manager. And that's a sign that you cared about. You're no longer chucked to the um, offshore call center. Mm. Um, you've got somebody on the end of a phone. If you can't get hold of them, you've got somebody who's office-based who can make sure that it gets under their nose. Yeah. So we've gone with that kind of approach. And do you know the interesting thing, Paul? When we look at the job spec, now now we've gone through um, the majority of the restructure and moving away from skill set and task and moving towards partner experience. When we look at the job spec of the portfolio manager and portfolio assistant, do they need to be a qualified accountant? Mm. Yeah, we, we've got one with a banking background. Mm. They've, um, we, we are the first accounting firm they've worked for and they, they're managing a portfolio. But the reality is they know how to deal with people. They know how to win business. They know how to keep business. They know what a profit and loss and balance sheet should look like. But they don't need to know FRS 1053 disclosures and tax rules and so on. Because the team behind the scenes can handle all of that stuff for them. Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. So it's clear that uh, your passion is clear for the care of the client, the impact, to use your word, that your work as an accountant or as a pod, a blended pod, use another word of yours, uh, uh, delivering for your business partners. And you've got the OKRs in place, and I just pick up on that, Carl, I, I agree. It might be old fashioned to hold people to account, but once upon a time, it was old fashioned for kids to play a game of football and want to win, as opposed to getting a medal for playing a part yep. it's like you know oh um for those on video you can see i'm wearing a, a, a rugby rfu hoodie i'm not a hoodie sort of guy but i've got my first ever job for the england rugby football union tomorrow i'm refereeing a grown-up game and getting paid so i've got a new job uh, so i'm going to get 20 quid tomorrow for refereeing a rugby match um and clearly i'm not doing it for the money but that's why i thought all right i'm going to wear this in my podcast um people play games to win getting clarity on what does winning mean? And it sounds as though in your firm, winning means making uh, six calls a day. Mm. And so let's be transparent about exactly what we've done or yeah. not done. Um, so I love that. I think accountability, accountability is something that um, accountants often, in fact, all of us are sort of uncomfortable with. Um, yeah. And but we're... This, this is, um, you know, the timesheet debate, for example, it's mm -hmm. a um, it's a big debate in the profession at the moment yet again. And Paul, I'm more than happy to say that we've scrapped timesheets three times. We put them back in three times. And <laughs> um, I, I can't tell you this week whether we've got them or not, but it'll be one or the other. Um, the reality is that there's a lot of noise and, and quite frankly, nonsense out there mm. about the fact that we should have this idealistic management approach. The reality, however, is completely different. Some of the old fundamentals of what gets measured, gets managed, etc., sit true. Yeah, and um, sure. we, we found that sometimes we just need to cut through the noise and do what's right for the business. Mm -hmm. I, I agree. And therefore, what's right for our business partners or clients? Absolutely. Therefore, let's track and measure it so that we can see whether we're winning or not. Yeah. And, you know, my views on this is, are we winning every week? Which is why I love the fact that you're saying we want to do six calls a day. 
I was I was brought up in the recruitment world before I get I got into the accountancy world, and you know we used to have a phrase which is ten calls before ten, ten before yeah. ten. So you walk in, had to make ten phone calls before it was ten o'clock. Yeah, and uh, and it's just uh, it stuck with me. That's thirty five years ago. That is, um, but it's like you know it is the conversation, it's the relationship, it's the empathy, it's the emotion where the real value lies. So anyone who's seen me on but, stage knows that I go down that path a lot. This is this is the thing with any endeavor. You know, if you if you want to do anything, it's actually. The path to success is actually really boring. You know, if I want to, um, you know, I, I enjoy weightlifting, for example, but I'm, I am admittedly very casual with it. So I, first of all, don't want to be a ripped 6% body fat athlete because I've never been 6% body fat in my life. And <laughs> I think I'd be really miserable without stuff like ice cream. Yeah. I just, that, that's not my bag. However, I'm also casual in that I don't drive myself enough for improvements and so on in that, in that world. But if mm. I wanted to, mm. I know that it's not going to be a protein shake or a tablet or any magic pill that's going to do this for me. Mm. It's going to be progressive overload. It's going to be consistency. Yeah, it's repetition. not going to be Friday morning jumping on the train and having a coffee in another town just mm. for the train journey. It's mm. going to be spending two hours in the gym mm. making an incremental improvement over mm. and over and over and over and over again. Yeah. And the same goes for everything, whether we want to excel on social media, whether we want to excel in sales, whatever it is we're doing, it's doing the boring stuff over and over again. Yeah, I agree. Is that rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat. Repetition is the route to installing the habits that bring you the success, whether it be weightlifting success or phoning client success or phoning business partner success. I, I absolutely agree. So I love the fact that even though you say oh, we haven't got any systems or processes, you have got a measuring measurement process which tracks the number of yeah. calls and OKR. I love that phrase, and uh, we're a huge fan of OKRs from a quarterly perspective within Remarkable Practice and see the merits that that brings, especially when you bring accountability to the place. Mm. And, you know, well, you know we've got a, a, a four-page-ish web-based report on accountability because it's one of those areas, those key moments, key issues that if accountants can ramp that skill up, they become better. Yes. They, they become better leaders, managers, and actual performers as well. So I love the OKR piece. Love the fact that you, you've got training in place. Love the fact you've got blended teams. They're not just accountants mm. in and around your pods. And um, love the fact you're looking for, you call them hooks, I call them triggers, that prompt a conversation about something of value to the client. Yes. And um, I think um, so there's there's definitely process and system going on here, even though uh, you were sort of playing it down. So I love that. Love that. Run us through, would you, you know, the, the the firm's approach to tech and the use of tech, would you please? Sure. So I'm not going to um, I'm not going to paint an extremely pretty picture, as many will. I think we have a um, a, a fractious relation with tech. Uh, it's, <laughs> we, we don't particularly enjoy it. There's let let, let me just state this now, and I'm going to upset a lot of listeners. Accountants are not innovators generally. Mm. and buying licenses to software does not make you innovative, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Um, why did we start on the tech journey? Our tech journey, um, if, we, if, if we use uh, the conversion to online as tech, which seems to be the, conf the conflation that's going on at the moment in the world, mm. when did we start our online, our tech journey? 2002, why did we start our tech journey? Because floppy disks were getting broken in the post. Mm-hmm. 
Okay, it was none of this always on business partner. It was none of this um, vision of cloud accountancy and so on. Mm. In 2002, I had martial arts schools up in Inverness and Elgin and down in Cornwall and over in Belfast. And when they sent me their floppy disk or CD-ROM in my post, it was getting broken. Mm. And I was having to phone them up and say, can you send it again? And it just was a pain point on both sides. So mm. we used iCash, um, which was Iris's online accounting tool. Um, started using that in 2002. I don't know the numbers, but I would guess we were probably their biggest partner, mm. given that we had 170 clients on online accounting by 2007. Mm. Um, we'd, we'd bought into the convenience of the delivery of information. But the reality is, Paul, when we look back to that time, when we look back to 2002, and even 2007 for, for some people in rural areas, it took longer to process a transaction online than on desktop software. Yeah. There's no such thing as broadband. Yeah. You know, this is, this yeah, is yeah. a different world. Yeah, dialogue world. Yeah, today, yeah, yeah. Yeah, this yeah. was a different world. We, we solely had to do it because we had plans of servicing niche industries nationally. Yeah. And Royal Mail simply wasn't good enough. Yeah. So that was what drove our tech journey. Um, we became Zero's first partner outside of New Zealand in 2007 because, mm. um, and again, it wasn't a flash of inspiration. It was because um, Iris pulled the plug on online accounting, thinking there's no future in it. Right. Um, we did that. And then our journey kind of went on since then. What What is our approach was your question. Yeah. And I'm also... I would like to share some of our learnings along the way because I think that's integrated. Mm. Um, our approach to tech initially, you know, in 2007, we, we bought into the hype. And when I say we bought into the hype, we bought into the perceived need to be not of a cutting edge, but of a bleeding edge, to be trying everything out, to be the first partners, to wear the T-shirts, be the fanboys, all of that stuff that we see people doing now. And I think, what on earth are you doing? Mm -hmm. We were using our partners as guinea pigs. Why were we doing that? So we were at the bleeding edge of tech. And then I worked out, uh, as has been true in many areas in my life, the better way to do things is to sit back, let other people make the mistakes, and then copy what works. So that's our approach now. Mm. Um, in terms of our approach for... Um, for choosing vendors and um, how we weigh up what we go with, what we don't. Um, we had three very simple questions when we took on Zero. So this was in 2007. Zero were in competition with um, Cashflow at the time. Yep. So um, I know Dwayne, I actually know Dwayne better since he's left Cashflow than before. Um, really inspirational guy, but the software wasn't wasn't to our needs at a point. Um, so there's zero, there was cash flow, and then there's a couple of others sort of like nipping at the bud that never actually went anywhere. Mm. Um, um, we just weighed up, does the software do what we need it to do? Mm. Well, quite simply, we needed, at the time, it was primarily Stagecoach. Mm. And by the way, I guess a story about um, humanity and keeping relationships, we found out that iCash was being discontinued from David Sprigg the franchisor right. at um, the stagecoach who happened to be in the pub with someone from Iris. Right, wow. So despite our account manager's protestations at the time, um, what David told us was true, it was being discontinued. Yeah. Right. So we had an urgency, so we had to look at what could do the job right now. Which business was well-capitalised? 
Mm. You know, have they got the money to be in business going forward? Yeah. And then finally, does the roadmap sit well with us? You know, are they likely to be acquired? Um, is it on the right path? And zero was the choice at the time. Yeah. We've applied those questions for every bit of tech since. Wow. And it kind of worked. Yeah. So we did it in 2015 with Intuit. Right. Yeah, we were weighing up. Are they well-funded? What's their vision? You know, we could be aligned with them. Does it do the job? Those similar questions. Yeah. And we've done it with every bit of software since. Mm. Brilliant. Um, and so I've got this thing, accountants love tech. It's almost as if they're looking for the silver bullet and the tech will deliver the silver bullet to resolve all the rails of their firm. Now, that might be yeah. an over-criticism, but, um, you know, that won't work. Or we'll, we'll build it or we'll buy it and the, the, the tech will fix it. There's, there's a resistance to, you know, that you talked earlier about the repetition process, repetition, mm. repeat, repeat, repeat. And, and actually what will happen is you will build the knowledge and the skill and the habit. So this is part of my fractious relationship with tech. And I say this being involved on the other side of the table as well. But I, I, I need to talk openly about this stuff, Paul. Um, the first challenge that a lot of firms have is that they buy into hype. They don't necessarily they don't necessarily love the tech, but they love the hype mm. and the perceived reassurance that if everyone else is doing something, it must be right. Mm. So they buy into hype. And what does that end up resulting in? A load of licenses that don't get used. Mm. We've had it and many other firms have. If you look at tech spend in the P&L of most firms, tech spend is massively disproportionate to the business. Mm. So that's the first issue with tech. Secondly, I think tech is something that's quite comfortable to hide behind. Yeah. So the modern equivalent of talking about when the firm was established and so on is to talk about the tech you use. Yeah. I hate to break it to everyone, but your clients don't give the monkeys what tech you use. <laughs> do you ask do you ask your car mechanic whether they use Mac tools or Snap-on tools? Yeah, brilliant. You don't. You yeah. want your car to work. Yeah. And uh, unfortunately, it's a nice, um, it's a nice comfort blanket to have yeah. and to talk about the tech and so on. But actually, there's only a few geeks who really care about that stuff. Yeah. So I, I think that's another side to the, um, the tech thing. But ultimately, I, te I tend to look at this how I look at all forms of automation and I don't want to say job protection because that sounds incredibly socialist and that, <laughs> that's, that's not my bag. Yeah. Um, but in terms of what roles are going to flourish in the future, mm. you need to look at what roles have got high interpersonal skills and what roles have got high specialist skills and tech chips away at that stuff. And for yeah. accountants, the specialist skills can be very easily automated and it doesn't need artificial intelligence or machine learning because most of the stuff we do as, a, as accountants, when we're knocking together a tax return or a set of accounts mm -hmm. is formulaic. We follow a flow chart. Yeah. We might not have that flow chart drawn out, but in our heads, we know that we do this and then we turn over this page and we write this down and it can fairly easily be automated. Mm -hmm. The thing that can't be automated is what we said right at the start of this podcast, picking up the blower, having that conversation. Yeah. How's the missus? How's the hubby? Yeah. Where are you going on holiday this year? Yeah. Do the stuff the tech can't do, which is humanise stuff. Yeah. Do the stuff that the numbers can't do, which is humanise the stuff. Is tap into the empathy, the relationships and so forth. Carl, that's simply brilliant. And it's a great way of um, rounding off our, uh, our conversations. Uh, the 
passion and enthusiasm, as always, which is why I wanted you on the podcast, is is clear. But the the clarity of insight and the practicality of what you shared is uh, is something to behold. I think uh, it's extremely generous of you to to go into such depth. I really appreciate your time and your energy and your zeal for yourself, your business partners, and uh, the way your team are interacting with your uh, with your business partners. Thank you very very much. No, thank you, Paul. It's been an honour to be a guest, and um, yeah, I look forward to listening when it's um, when it's finally edited. You'll find more valuable discussions with the leaders of ambitious accounting firms at humanisethenumbers.online. You can also sign up to be notified each time a new podcast is made available. This podcast series, Humanise the Numbers, has been made possible thanks to the support of our sponsors. My work papers, Advanced Track, Citago, and VFD Pro. Visit humanisethenumbers.online, click the logo of each sponsor, and you'll hear what our podcast interviewees have to say about the sponsor's services. So, Carl, I know you've recently done the hard graft of writing your own uh, in-depth book, uh, Boss It. I hope I've got that right. Um, and I've uh, had the great privilege of, um, of of pulling out one or two quotes and using them on presentations, always referencing you, by the way. Um, uh, tell me, what was the kernel and the reason for starting that process and, and, and how's it gone? So I'm really glad that you've referenced um, Bossit quotes to me because I probably nicked them from someone else. So thank you so much. <laughs> um, <laughs> I probably shouldn't admit that, but hey, um, there's very little that's original these days. Absolutely. Um, what was the driver behind Bossit? I, um, so I wrote my first book, Startup Coach, in 2014, 2015. And to be honest, Paul, I wanted to redo the Startup Coach. I wanted to make it something that I would want to read, um, but more importantly to me, something my kids would want to read. Mm. So I wanted it to be a letter to my kids and I guess the textbook that's not given at schools. So for me personally, there's um, a couple of things that really drive me. So the first one is poverty alleviation. And I believe, uh, particularly for kids, and I know I shouldn't discriminate, but I I do work with... um, the Trussell Trust and with Buttle, they're both around poverty alleviation. Mm. And my view is that no kid chooses to be in poverty. Mm. If the parents might make choices that lead to it, but the kids don't choose and uh, they all have to be given a, a, a fair start in life. And then the second is um, entrepreneurship at a young age, because I believe that for many people, entrepreneurship is a very, uh, not an easy way, but it's a way out of poverty and it's a way to build so many life skills that can help you, even if you don't end up being Richard Branson. Yeah. So it kind of hit my sweet spot there as well. So that was the combination was um, trying to trying to serve people, trying to get people out of tricky situations, but giving the next generation hope that they could do something. But the challenge we've got is that there's no textbook for business at school. Mm-hmm. And when I did business studies, if you'd have asked me what business was, it was all shiny glass buildings and share valuations and so yeah, on. Yeah. It wasn't the reality of buying something for a five and selling it for a tenner. Yeah. So I wanted to create that, that basic textbook on how to start a business 
But I also didn't want it to be a textbook because Startup Coach was a textbook. I wanted it to be a combination of checklists, but also cheerleading. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that there's motivation and inspiration Brilliant. as well as application. And hopefully I hit the spot. It was um, best-selling in WH Smith for yeah. eight months. Yeah, yeah. Keep seeing it and in it every really railway station I go in. It's brilliant. Carl, again, really appreciate your time and your effort and your energy today. Uh, it's been outstanding. Thank you very, no, very thank much. Thank you, Paul. Have, have an awesome weekend and enjoy the refereeing.